Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 27. Last week, we looked at the death of Christ. And when we look at the death of Christ, we are forced to come face to face with the reality and the cost and the consequence of our sin. You and I, on our own, even though I might not know the deepest recesses of your heart, I am just going to guess that you and I, on our own, share the common tendency to minimize our sin. Uh, We justify it, we rationalize it, we take what we're going through, and we say, yes, I might have responded imperfectly, maybe I got angry, maybe I was jealous, Uh, maybe I just simply didn't do what I was supposed to, but you have to understand how bad the circumstance was. If only you understood how bad the other person was, if only you realized how unfair this was, then you would understand, and we are so quick to justify those things that we do that are actually nothing more than rebellion against the God who made us. The cross strips away any ability for us to do that. It is the holiness of God laid bare as Jesus Christ, the perfect Son, bears up under the wrath of God as the sacrifice for our sins. In the cross, we see the holiness of God, the perfection of Christ, and the beauty of mercy all come together in a way that helps us to take our sins seriously and rejoice in the redemption that's offered. We saw that for the first three hours, Christ interacts with the people around them. He, he pleads with the Father to forgive those who are actively killing him because they don't know what they're doing. He tells a thief that he'll be with them in paradise. He commits the care of his mother to John, but then as darkness simply blots out the sun, the sun is silent. When we looked back at the Old Testament, and we saw that there are times when the presence of God, although God is light, although he dwells in glorious light, and that is absolutely appropriate, there are times when the presence of God brings a terrifying darkness. There are times when he enters into covenant relationship with his people, and there's darkness. There's times when the wrath of God is poured out against sin, and there's darkness. And what we see at the cross is both happening. A new covenant brought in through the blood of Christ, a new and better covenant, like the author of Hebrews says, is coming into effect. And at that same moment, the wrath of God, the terrible, perfect wrath of God is poured out against sin on the sun. And then when the darkness flees, that cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? the Son that had known only perfect fellowship with the Father through all eternity. And now that fellowship was broken as He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. As the Father allows the Son and the Son willingly bears the sins of His people, the Father deals with the Son as if He were me. And that presence of God to comfort, to bless is broken. And in the final words of Christ, as he willingly gives up his spirit, there's hope because he says it is finished. The work of redemption is done. The sacrifice is accepted, and we can experience restoration to the God that we sinned against. And that's really what we begin to look through now. I said it last week, and Everything in Matthew's gospel builds to the cross. It prepares us for the cross, and everything from the cross is a result of the cross. And so today we begin to look at the results of the cross. We look at the work of the cross, exactly what it is that the cross accomplished. So if you're not there already, find your way to Matthew 27. And our text for today is going to be 27, 51 through 56. So I'll read that now to kind of set us up for where we're going. Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 51, this is what God's word says. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and they appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake, And what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. And there were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee and ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Let's pray. Lord, we come before your word and we ask what we ask on a regular basis. Lord, will you open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things. 
from your word. Lord, we know that on our own we bring darkness, we bring sin, we bring our misunderstandings, our misconceptions, Lord, but your word brings clarity, it brings light, and your spirit makes us able to understand what you have written. So, Lord, open our eyes. And, Lord, we ask that you would not only help us to see what is true, but then once again, through the power of your spirit working in our lives, that we would be enabled to walk in what is true, to obey what we understand to live in light of the truth that you've poured out on us. You're a great God, and you're worthy of all of our praise, all of our worship, and you're worthy of all of our obedience through every part of our life. So we ask for your help in these things, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Do you ever really pour your heart and soul into something and then just kind of have to step back and wonder if it's going to work out? I mean, you can spend hundreds of dollars on the kid's birthday party and trying to meet all their expectations and the day comes and either the color of the streamers are wrong or nobody else comes or the clown that you hired is more creepy than entertaining, which is what you get for hiring a clown. But maybe it's the work project. Maybe it's something that you've staked your career on and you go into the meeting fully confident and then the boss just tears it apart because something wasn't quite what he was looking for. They go with a completely different proposal and all that work feels wasted. And now we come to the cross of Christ. And Matthew has been preparing us for the cross, for his whole gospel. We know that this is the design of God. Jesus has been preparing his men for this for a long time, at least from our perspective since Matthew 16. He has told them exactly what is coming and what it is going to look like. And now it's happened, but did it work? Did this great design, this great plan of God actually do what it intended to do? And the wonderful, marvelous thing about God's word is that within the span of a few verses, immediately after Christ breathes his last breath, we see that it did exactly what God ordained it would do. That's what we're going to go through today, the finished, accomplished work of the cross. And we're going to start by looking at this restoration that takes place. The cross accomplishes a work of restoration. Since the Garden of Eden, something has been broken. And the cross shows that that has been repaired. And as we open up verse 51, we're going to see a physical action that is a picture of a greater reality. Now, what do I mean by that? Don't don't get confused. Uh, We've talked about parables that are a story that uses common elements to display a spiritual theme. These are something like living parables. They actually happen. These are real historical events. These are not allegories. These are not something we have to search for deeper meaning in. But these physical actions that happen over these next few verses are the demonstration of spiritual realities that are very, very significant. So my hope is that that'll become very, very clear as we move through here. But let's look at this first picture that we see here, and that's in verse 51. Matthew writes, And behold, look, pay attention. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Immediately at the death of Jesus, significant things begin to happen. There's an earthquake that people feel, but but, uh, Matthew writes about a curtain in the temple that was torn in two from top to bottom. And in order to understand not only what happened, but the significance of why it happened, we need to be reminded of some things about the temple and really about the tabernacle. So uh, we've been over these before, but just to refresh you, if you were to go way back to the book of Exodus, as God brings his people out of slavery in Egypt, in Exodus 19, he says some remarkable things to them. God says to his people that although the entire earth is mine, you, Israel, are going to be a treasured possession to me. Out of all the nations of the earth, you are going to be mine, and I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests. One of the remarkable promises to those people was that he would dwell among them. And unless we understand the span of redemptive history, we don't understand how significant that is, because man had not walked with God since the Garden of Eden, where sin broke and severed that fellowship. And man is expelled from the Garden, and God and man no longer live together. And now God says he is going to once again dwell in the midst of his people. But if we know anything about Israel, we know that that's a problem. Because Israel, just like us, is a sinful people. And what do we learn from the cross? That a holy God cannot bear the presence of sin. How do you reconcile those two things? How does a holy God live among a sinful people? The answer is through the tabernacle 
and the sacrifices. God says, I'm going to give you a place where I will dwell among you and where you may approach me in the way that I prescribed. And if you look up on the screen, oh, please, next, there will be a picture of the tabernacle and what it looked like. It's a tent that God gave the design to, every specification, every measurement, every material, every color. It was designed to be dedicated over to the worship of God. And outside of that tabernacle, you have the altar where the people would bring their offerings. You have a basin where the priests would wash to maintain that holy purity and cleanliness. And then as you move into the inside of the tabernacle, it's basically divided into two sections. A larger section is where the priest would go in and and they would do their work. There's the table with bread where uh, there's a loaf for every tribe of Israel. There's a lampstand that stayed lit. There's an altar of incense. And then behind a curtain, behind a veil, there's a smaller room, the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. The place where the Ark of the Covenant would rest. The place where the very presence of God would dwell among his people. Now Solomon acknowledges as he's building the temple that the whole creation can't contain God. This is not God in a box. This is not God confined to a small room. God is more magnificent, more... uh, He is more than his creation could contain. But he has said that a manifestation of my presence will be there among my people. And we have to understand that because the temple essentially serves the same function. The temple is certainly grander The temple is absolutely more permanent, but at its heart, the temple, as we'll see in the next slide, is a a permanent place where that presence of God was meant to be among his people. Constructed along the same patterns, fulfilling the same functions, the priests doing their same duties. Beyond the holy place, the most holy place, the holy of holies. And between those two, a curtain a veil that historical sources tell us was several inches thick. And this veil that separates the holy place from the most holy place is more than just a physical barrier. It serves as something of a spiritual barrier. It's a reminder that the holiness of God cannot be lightly approached by sinful men. In fact, if you kind of pull back and you think about the tabernacle and the temple itself, you have this wonderful paradox and tension that gets built because god has said he will live among his people can you imagine that being an israelite in the presence of the tabernacle or later on in the temple and saying god dwells there i could tell you where the god of the universe has chosen to make his home he is there but while you could point to it you could never get there You could never actually go into that presence of God, although you could see where it was. You look at that temple, and what do you see? Walls. Barriers. If you were a Gentile, you came this far and no further. If you were a woman, this far and no further. If you were an Israelite, this far and no further. But even if you were born into the right family, even if you were born to the Levites, to the priests, you could come this far and no further. Maybe during your assigned rotation, you would handle the duties inside that holy place. You'd offer the incense offerings. You'd change the bread on that table. But you did not dare go beyond that veil into the most holy place. And even if you were born to an even more exclusive role than that, even if you were the oldest son of the high priest in the line of Aaron, you went into that holy of holies exactly one day a year And you did not dare go through that veil without taking care of the sin offering. First for your own sins, and then bringing in the sin offering of the people. And you sprinkled the blood on the offering, and you left. You didn't linger. You didn't marvel at the presence of God. You came, you obeyed, and you left. And as you come out of that holy place, the nation breathes a sigh of relief because their sins are covered at least for another year. And now something has changed. Because what's the point to what Matthew has written? That's the picture that we're given in this historical event, that the veil is torn. But what's the point of that? Matthew gives us a hint in what he says. It was torn in two from top to bottom. This is not a ground-up movement. This is something that comes from the top down. This is a divine purpose. 
And to see the significance behind it, we really have to turn to the book of Hebrews, where I started reading from earlier this morning. Turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 8, almost to the end of the Bible. Hebrews is a wonderful book. We don't know who wrote it. It is essentially a written-out sermon where where the author is showing you that Jesus is better. As we come to the beginning of chapter 8, it's what we read at the beginning of service, the fact that we have such a great high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord has set up, not man. The idea that Jesus is a high priest who has done a better work in a better place. Uh, He's a high priest unlike the other high priests under the law. For one thing, he doesn't die. You might have a great high priest but he can only be the high priest as long as he lives. You may have a real dirtbag as a high priest, and he's only the high priest for as long as he lives. All of those high priests kept on dying. And not only does he not die, but he doesn't have any sin of his own to deal with. He doesn't have to offer a sacrifice for his own sin. He doesn't bring it to a physical place. He brings it to the perfect tabernacle. And his work is finished. This blood that brings in a new covenant. And look at what he writes in chapter 8, verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. That law, that old covenant, served a purpose. But it has been superseded by a new and better covenant in Jesus. That temple was mandatory. It was necessary. It was good. That system of offerings and sacrifices was good. Even those barriers between the holiness of God and sinful people were good. They were God-ordained. They were part of the worship given to Israel and all those who would draw near to Yahweh. But something better has come in. Chapter 9 talks about the physical place of that temple. It talks about the work of the high priest and how he could only go in once a year into the Holy of Holies. And Now look at chapter 9, starting in verse 6. The author says, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. So that's into that larger part, that holy place. But into the second, that that holy of holies, only the high priest goes. And he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of his people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. Do you understand that? The Holy Spirit is giving this picture to the worshipers as often as the high priest goes in and out, as often as long as the temple is standing, it's this picture and the reminder that the way is not opened. That the way between man and God has barriers and steps that must be cleared before you can get there. But Jesus does something that puts an end to all of that. Verse 11 says, Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. And he's entered into a greater and more perfect tent. The idea that his offering was not made in the earthly temple. It was given before God in heaven. He's the mediator of a new covenant. And this covenant actually purifies people. Where the blood of the old covenant could cover over sin for a time, this sacrifice of Jesus Christ actually cleanses sin. It actually accomplishes real redemption. And because it does, turn to chapter 10 and look at verse 19. Because Jesus' blood actually cleanses his people, therefore, brothers, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Do you see the picture there? That as that curtain was torn, it is symbolic, it is the picture of access now being granted to God. Through the sacrifice of Christ, that way has been opened. That barrier has been done away with. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The cross of Jesus Christ, the death of the perfect lamb, the substitute that took our place means that we can enter the holy place. Do you understand how unthinkable that is under the law? 
when people tried to enter into the presence of God, uninvited and unqualified, the penalty was immediate divine death. Nadab and Abihu, Korah and his rebellion and how they desired to be priests, that the instances every time where man approaches God on his own terms are death. And now through the work of Christ, we're told, come. Boldly come full of confidence into the very presence of God. Not brashly, not recklessly, not thoughtlessly, but confidently through the work of Christ. Through the veil that's not made of fabric, but through the veil that was torn and it's his flesh, a way that was opened for us. And we could spend a lot more time. You can turn back to Matthew 27, uh, because that is, again, that alone is an earth-shaking reality. But as we turn back to Matthew 27, very much like the infomercials that I love so much, but wait, there's more. That would be enough to, to understand that you and I, fallen creatures, sinful creatures, have access to the God who made us would be enough. Uh, but there's more because the death of Jesus Christ on the cross brought the promise of resurrection only a restoration, but a resurrection that's promised. And for the second picture, look at the end of verse 51 and into verse 52. So there's the earth that shook and the rocks were split. In verse 52, the tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and they appeared to many. Now, there are several places in the Bible where I personally think that a couple more verses would be really helpful. This is one of those places. Now, who were the saints that were raised? Who did they appear to? How long were they there? What kind of bodies did they have? What did they do after they appeared to people? Where did they eventually go? I have no idea. Now, that doesn't mean that God is holding out on us, right? Second Peter says that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. In other words, knowing the details that my curiosity would love to have satisfied, knowing those details would not contribute one bit to my salvation, and it would not make me one bit more able to worship God or to obey Him. I am lacking nothing when it comes to eternal life or the ability to obey God while I am here. Deuteronomy says the secret things belong to the Lord. Maybe someday up in heaven we'll see what this looked like and we'll be able to worship him even more fully because we have that picture. But for now, uh, we simply don't have those details. And as a result of not having a lot of the details, there are a number of people who say that this is not really a historical event, that either somebody inserted this in the gospel much later or that Matthew is giving kind of a picturesque way of illustrating the resurrection. Now make no mistake, resurrection is the point of this. But this is why context is so important. You read through this portion of Scripture, and this is not an allegory, this is not poetic imagery, and this is not in the center of a bunch of parables. This is a historical account of what happened at the cross of Christ. He was hung on a real cross. There was real darkness for a period of three hours. He cries out in real words that people hear. He dies a real death. The earth really shook. So everything in this kind of demands that we take it literally and all we have is the idea that as he dies, and more specifically as he is raised, something remarkable happens. There are saints, holy ones, people who were in right relationship with God, who were raised and who come out of their tombs after his resurrection, and who appear to many. Some of you, at some point, someone this week it's going to send me an email and you're going to ask me for more information on that and you are going to be tremendously disappointed send the email love to talk with you but you have exactly what i have on this the key thing though that we can't look past is that it's tied to his resurrection that they come out of the tombs that they appear to many that they do this after the resurrection of Christ. And that leads us to the point of this. Beyond just the physical reality that might be very strange for us to hear is the point of all of this, and that is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually does something. The death of Christ, and more than that, the life of Christ accomplishes something on behalf of his people. Now, this is critical because in some senses, it's one more proof in Matthew's Gospel that Jesus Christ has power over the dead. Now, we've already seen this, haven't we? 
He's already raised the little girl from the dead. We know from the other gospel accounts that he's raised up Lazarus from the dead. And this once again shows that Christ has the ability to overcome even death. But that little girl that he raised up from the dead is not alive today. Lazarus, that he called out of the tomb, would grow old and would die. What you and I need is not a temporary solution to physical death. What you and I need is not a way to simply extend our life and live a bit longer. What we need is the reality of the promise that Jesus makes in Matthew 19, verse 29, where he says, Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. That's what we need is some assurance, some understanding that there is a hope, not for a longer life, but for eternal life. And that's why the gospel writers focus so intently not just on the cross, but on what the cross accomplished. Not just on the death of Christ, but on the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection, the new life of Christ is central to the hope of the gospel message. But why does it matter that some people came out of the graves after Jesus died? I mean, in today's world, that just gets turned into a bad zombie movie or something. But why does it matter that this actually happened? Because as he is raised, there is physical proof that the life of Christ brings life to his people. These are saints who had died, and they did not cease to exist. They did not simply vanish into the void. These are people whose lives carried on in the presence of God, and now they anticipate and they hope for this eternal life, and they demonstrate the idea that life is possible. And this, this reality is so marvelous that Paul spends 58 verses talking about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So turn there with me now because I want you to be encouraged by this as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul is writing to a church that is in several degrees of turmoil. Uh, they struggle with unity. They struggle with sin in their midst. They struggle with understanding how marriage ought to work. They struggle with the spiritual gifts. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we see that at least some of them were struggling with the idea of resurrection. Paul opens 1 Corinthians 15 with this great summary of the gospel in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance that what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He was buried and He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Paul says, I gave you that foundational truth, the most important thing, this gospel that says that Jesus Christ died for our sins, and all of this according to the Scriptures, according to the plan of God. And that Christ who was dead was raised again also according to the foreknowledge and the plan of God. And then Paul goes on and he begins to list witness after witness to that resurrection. In other words, he establishes the resurrection as a historical reality. And the reason why is because in verse 12, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Some of you are saying that the dead aren't really raised, but then why is it that we would preach about Christ being resurrected? In verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Understand this, Paul says, if Christ is not raised, then your faith is ultimately in vain. Then none of this means anything. Because those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Those who have died, even rightly related to Christ, are still dead. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, if the hope of Christ is good for this life, these 40, 50, 60, 80, 100 years, if that's as much as it's good for, then Paul says, we of all people are the most to be pitied. You understand that? If your hope in Christ is good for this life only, then what a waste. Because Christ says, deny yourself, lay down your desires, give up everything for my sake. And if you're giving up everything for the sake of this brief life, there's no point to it. You might as well go out and get whatever you can get and enjoy this life to the fullest. But Paul says, no, there's something more, there's something greater. Look down to verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ is the first fruits, the promise, the guarantee of a future return. 
That's how it's connected to his resurrection in Matthew. The resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees the resurrection of his people. How do you know? Because as soon as Christ was raised, we have this sampling of some of God's faithful people being raised up in his likeness. As soon as Christ is raised from the dead, we are given this historical, physical proof that God will do exactly what he said he would do. Yes, we wait for the fullness of that promise. In fact, Paul will go through and he begins talking about that there's an order to this, that God will put all things into subjection to Christ, that in the end when he delivers the kingdom to God after destroying every rule and authority and power, that the last enemy that he destroys is death. This is coming. This does point to the future where Christ will rule over all. But God gave us this wonderful picture in Matthew 27 that shows us that he's going to be faithful to do exactly what he said he would do. And this all matters so much because we live in a world that's terrified of death. Hebrews chapter 2 says that men live their lives in the slavery of the fear of death. You understand that for the Christian, it doesn't have to be that way. 1 Corinthians 15, 50, Paul says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. You are not fit to inherit eternity in these bodies that you currently possess. And so a change must take place, either through death or, as Paul says, when the Lord comes to gather his people. Something remarkable happens. This idea of, reality, of the reality of the resurrection, this promise of eternal life, that's what brings about verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ, we have this great victory, this victory over sin and death, because Jesus Christ overcame sin and death. The death of Christ is not the final word. The life of Christ is. The sacrifice was sufficient accepted by the Father. The grave has no claim on him, and he rises again to new life. And in doing that, he promises that his people will. And Matthew gives us this brief snapshot, this kind of picture of the down payment of what is to come in the future for all of God's people. We're not a people who fear death. We're a people who live with the characteristic of a living hope. So uh, the people of God have access to God through the finished work of Christ. The people of God have a living hope because the resurrection of Christ is the promise and the first fruits of their resurrection, but that leads to the question, who can be the people of God? Do you ever wonder how you know that you or I or anyone has any business laying claim to any of these things? Back to Matthew chapter 27, and I think that's why he finishes the way that he does. Because over these last few verses, what we see is that the death of Christ brings reconciliation. And reconciliation sometimes to the most unexpected places. Because as we look through these last few verses that we're going to cover today, we're going to see kind of this sampling of people who ought really to have no claim on this king and his kingdom. Look at verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Now, a centurion is a, group, a commander over a group of about 100 soldiers, and this centurion and his men were charged with the oversight of what happened to Jesus. We're not given names, we're not given specific orders, but it is reasonable to assume that these were the men who saw Jesus beaten and mocked. That these were the men who saw Jesus stumble under the weight of the cross. This centurion and his men were among those who put the nails in his hands and feet. But they also heard him ask the Father to forgive them. They heard him promise that thief next to him that he'd be with them in paradise. They saw him entrust Mary to John's care. They saw the sun fail and the sky go black. They heard him cry out, my God, why have you forsaken me? And now they've heard him breathe his last. Luke's gospel says it this way. Luke's gospel says, Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, 
saying, certainly this man was innocent. The centurion, in light of all that happens, recognizes two very important things. First of all, he recognizes Christ as innocent. As every last bit of the last couple of chapters has shown, Christ is perfectly innocent and righteous in all of this. And second, that Christ is exactly who he claimed to be. And that is that this Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And we read right past that. And because we're familiar with the details and because we have the story set in our mind, it doesn't strike us like it should. Do you understand that the last two people in Matthew's Gospel who have come to a saving understanding of who Christ is are a condemned thief dying for his sins and a pagan Roman military official. A symbol of the oppression of God's people. And they get it. How does that happen? I think it's likely the same way that Peter is able to say back in Matthew chapter 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. God opens Peter's mouth. God opens their eyes. And it's been a subtle theme running all the way through Matthew's Gospel, hasn't it? That those who should know don't get it. And that God is in the business and the habit of saving the outsider, the other, and the outcast. And I think that's how this is connected to what comes next. Look at verse 55. And there were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. This is this beautiful, precious picture of devotion to Christ. These women who had consistently followed Jesus all the way from Galilee, now all the way on the pilgrimage down, and they had ministered to his needs. They make the physical ministry of Jesus possible through their hospitality, through their financial sacrifice. They meet the needs of Jesus and his men. From a very human, realistic standpoint, they make it so that Jesus can do what he does. And that doesn't mean that God is limited by human interaction. I understand God's sovereignty, but they were the tools that provided for the physical needs of Jesus. Do you see how precious that is? Do you see the beautiful picture of faithfulness here in these women? Because who would you expect to be standing around the foot of the cross? Even weeping, even mourning, who would you expect to be there? It's got to be the disciples, right? I mean, weren't these the guys who just a few hours ago promised to a man that they would be with him? Even to the death, that they would be with him. And what's Matthew's final word on the disciples? In the garden, they flee into the darkness at his arrest. Peter follows close enough to be at the trial, but then denies Jesus three times and runs weeping into the night. But not these women. They're there. And by the way, they don't have any additional special revelation that tells them what's going to happen. Their understanding is that their hope has been crushed, but they are there. And it's fascinating that one of these women then becomes the first to testify about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This group of women becomes the eyewitness to his death and to his resurrection. Women, by the way, who wouldn't have been been seen to be fit witnesses in a trial are now the witnesses to the most significant events in human history. It's a really precious picture of God reconciling a people to himself because what's the point? The point is that the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ result in the building of his church. Because we ask all the way through Matthew's Gospel who's fit to inherit the kingdom And it's almost never the answer we would assume. Jesus Christ says he's going to build his church and it's going to be Jew and Gentile and man and woman and rich and poor all brought to the glory of salvation through Jesus Christ. And if we've been paying attention, that's how Matthew has been preparing us because it's not the religious leaders who go to worship the newborn king. Who is it? Wise men from the east. It's not the wealthy and the powerful who inherit the kingdom, according to Matthew 5. It's the poor in spirit. It's the weak. It's those who mourn. It's the other centurion in Matthew's gospel who says, my servant is ill, come and heal. And Jesus says, I'll go. And the centurion says, no, 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 no. I'm a man under authority. I know what authority looks like. I tell this soldier, come, and he comes. I tell that one, go, and he goes. And in you, Jesus, I see authority. No, you just speak the word now, and he'll be healed even as I go. And Jesus marvels at his faith. It's a woman who's bled for over a decade, 
who has the faith to fight through the crowd just to touch the edge of his robe. It's the Canaanite woman who's content with the scraps from the master's table. It is not those that we would expect. It is the fact that Jesus Christ has come to save the sick, the lost, and the sinner. And how did, Jesus, how did Matthew start his whole gospel? This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, and the son of Abraham, the son of David, the king who has the right to his kingdom, a central theme of the book, but he's also the son of Abraham. Abraham who was promised land, seed, and blessing. That God would bless those who bless him and curse those who cursed him, and somehow through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. How is it that one man brings blessing to all the nations of the earth? It's through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who is the gospel that has the power to save. As Paul says in Romans 1, to the Jew first, but then also to the Greek. That's why Paul writes to the Galatians, who are being tempted to go back and put themselves under the bondage of the law. He says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Jesus Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. God has given wonderful and beautiful diversity in this world. We see the beauty of God's design and his distinction. Nations, languages, colors. Even male and female with their beautiful design and distinction and role. But when it comes to salvation, one. One Savior, fit and able to save those from every tribe and tongue and nation. To the dying thief, Christ is the hope. To a pagan Roman centurion with no claim the blessings of being one of God's people, Christ is the hope. To those wonderful women, faithful even in their heartache, Christ is the hope. And you and I need to be reminded that this is a hope that matters. As we come together, sometimes I, I'm convicted that we do it out of habit. We, we come on a Sunday because that's what we do. We come together and we sing because that's what we do. We listen to someone opens God, open God's word because that's what we do. And if we weren't doing it here, then I suppose we'd be doing whatever other tradition we happen to be born up into. Do you understand this has to be more than rote tradition or habit? We gather together because of the finished work on the cross. Because, and I'm serious about this question. Is there anything greater than what we have heard today? Not the sermon, certainly not that. But is there anything greater than the truths that we've looked at today? The fact that you and I have access to the God of creation. The fact that you and I have a hope that goes beyond anything in this temporary life. And the fact that no matter who you are, where you come from, what you've done, what your background is, that the gospel is sufficient to save you. Sufficient to save me. Is there anything greater than that? There, there isn't. So what do we do with this? Well, we think about those three things. First of all, we have access to God. You and I have been called and privileged with the ability to boldly approach the throne of grace, to draw near to God in times of sorrow and pain and victory. And you've got to ask how. How is it that a weak and sinful and fallen people can do that? It's only through the work of Christ. And the wonderful thing is we don't have to go through layers of mediators. You don't have to come to me so that I can bring your prayer requests on an express route to God. You don't need to pray through a saint. There are not barriers and layers. You can go directly to God because of the work of Jesus Christ, the better high priest. And it's not because we're good enough. It's because he is. Because we're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Secondly, we remember that we have a living hope. A hope in life that is greater than anything that makes up this life. You want a painful experiment this week that will help reveal where your hope is. As you go through this week, evaluate what makes you angry, what makes you hopeless, what leads you to sin. If the thought of losing that boy or that girl, high schoolers, but anyone, brings you to despair, then your hope is in the wrong place. If the thought of losing the job and the financial provision leads you to despair, then your hope is in the wrong place. If the thought of getting a bad report from a doctor leads you to despair, then our hope is in the wrong place, and that doesn't minimize any of those things. They are difficult. They are heartbreaking. They are painful. But the promises of the cross supersede all of those things. 
It talks about a living hope that goes beyond any of those temporal, temporary things. A life that doesn't fade, that's not marred by pain or heartbreak or conflict. And because Christ died and rose again, we know that we will too. And finally, the idea that we have a saving call. Jesus saves the outsider, the outcast, the sinner. And maybe you're sitting here or listening in some capacity and you're thinking that your past is too bad, too ugly, too sordid, too whatever, and that you must do something to clean yourself up before you could possibly be acceptable to God. You could spend the rest of your life cleaning yourself up and you would never be acceptable to God and neither would I. None of us have a sanitary past. None of us are clean. None of us are worthy. But Christ has done what we could not. His righteousness has been placed on us. And that goodness and that mercy and that grace and that forgiveness is powerful enough to overcome any sin you have committed or will commit. That's the wonderful hope of salvation. That our sins are many and His mercy is more, as the song we often sing goes. Or maybe there's that person that you would tell the Gospel to, but there's no way that it would ever reach them. A thief on a cross a centurion and his men, and ruined sinners. The gospel is the power of God, and that's why in 2 Corinthians 5.21, all the time, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. But the verses immediately before that, Paul says, all of these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's the ministry that you and I have one of reconciliation and preaching the gospel that reconciles men to God. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God was making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled for God. Christian, that is your mission. To plead with others to be reconciled to the God who was reconciled to you. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you because the cross did a real work. It accomplished real redemption. And it gives us better promises. Promise of new life in Christ. Promise of resurrection. Of an eternity with you. And Lord, you've given us a gospel to preach. A gospel that saves the other, the outcast, the outsider, the rich, the poor, the educated, the uneducated, the Jew, the Gentile. Lord, you've given us the one saving gospel that calls us to repentance and to place our faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross his death, his burial, and his resurrection that brings new life. Lord, make us faithful to these things. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as we prepare to take communion together, I know that uh, we are still working with those little plastic cups that take some manipulation. And if you don't have uh, communion elements, if you could just slightly put your hand up during this time, and the ushers will make sure that you get those as they make their way back. And before we take communion, we'll do what we always do, and we'll ask that uh, you take a few moments and prepare your hearts, that you come before God and where there is sin, that you confess it. That if you are not a believer, if you don't understand what we're talking about, if this gospel is still foreign to your ears or you're still wrestling with it, uh, let communion go. Don't take it. There's nothing magical about this that fixes your relationship with God. This is an external action that demonstrates a physical or an internal spiritual reality. And we would love to talk with you about that. If you have questions, we would love to talk with you, but let communion go. But if you are a believer, then take a moment to rejoice, to repent if that's necessary, if there's bitterness, anger that you're holding on to, if there's sin that's gone unconfessed this week, deal with that now so that you can be prepared to celebrate with the body as we take communion. So we'll give you a minute to do that, and then we'll come back and we'll take the bread and the cup together in a moment.
And to that same church in Corinth that Paul wrote about the wonders of the resurrection to, he gives him instruction in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, For I received from the Lord that what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. Let's pray. Lord, you prepared a body of sacrifice. Not a bull or a goat, not something temporary, but the perfect Lamb of God. The Son, the only Son, one in glory with the Father, humbled himself. Being found in the likeness and the appearance of man, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Lord, we rejoice in the sacrifice that was prepared for us, the body of Christ. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, if you'll take a moment to prepare the cup. We're reminded through Hebrews of the blood of the covenant, of better blood that brings better sacrifice with better results. That's what's behind what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. And once again, let's pray. Lord, you've given us the blood of a better covenant. A sacrifice that doesn't just cover sins, but that cleanses our sin. And Lord, you've called on us to do this as a body, one with another, as a sign and a symbol of our fellowship with you and of our fellowship with one another. And Lord, you've called us to do this until you come again. Lord, even in the taking of the bread and the cup, there's the promise and the hope of you being faithful to all of your promises. That you will return, that you will restore, that you will rule the nations and that we will live in eternity with you. What a remarkable promise. Lord, we praise you and we thank you. We ask that you would make our lives look more and more like the sun. In Christ's name, amen.